Hello, welcome to Crowdsourcing Revolution. I'm Amanda Rice. Today's episode is on the bank collapses. Uh, One of the reasons I wanted to cover this today is because it is an ongoing developing story, and I know there's a lot of smart people here on call-in that might have some takes on it. I also got a, um, let's just say, detailed set of emails from a friend of mine, and I'm just going to start the show off by, um, by reading what what this person sent. This is a person who wants to remain anonymous, but who in whom I trust. So, I mean, I've got one anonymous source, me and Seymour Hirsch. I'm glad to tell you who it is offline at some point, but it is somebody that I trust. So if you trust me, that'll have to do for today. But I got the first email that I got um, was yesterday. Greetings all. If you haven't heard, the the 16th largest U.S. bank collapsed in less than in less than 24 hours Friday and has been taken over by the U.S. federal government. This was followed by a bank run at First Republic Bank with people lining up yesterday to withdraw their funds. There have been reported paycheck deposit issues at Wells Fargo and Bank of America, and Schwab has reportedly had to make financial moves too. $42 was withdrawn from the U.S. banking system in one day. The Federal Board of Governors will be meeting Monday morning. Clearly, the Federal Reserve's steep interest rate rises have begun to buckle the U.S. banking system and starkly reveals that there is a huge unknown universe of financial exposure out there. Not only is the U.S. financial system buckling, but the international sovereign debt status of countries are at growing sovereign default risk from the continued Federal Reserve interest rates that have driven the dollar higher recently. Uh, Again, as happened last year in October before the Federal Reserve made changes to the reserve to reserve the rising dollar, lest it destabilize many more countries in the global south, like what happened in Sri Lanka last year. There was also the UK pension funds crisis from a bond collapse that was that revealed the fragility. Sorry. That revealed the fragility. of the global financial system. And we just saw the collapse of the crypto banking system with FTX and Silvergate's collapses. Canadian pension funds were invested in Silvergate, by the way. For analysis on this rapidly unfolding story, I highly recommend the left-wing economics professor, Jack Rasmus, which I did ask um, Jonathan, I'm glad to see that you're here, um, his opinion on this economist, maybe he knows him. Uh, Professor Rasmus will be posting his new podcast. I did listen to it. Um, His podcast is called Alternative Visions. And uh, he made some remarks on the Silicon Valley Bank collapse on there. 
And then I got a next, the next email a couple hours later, update number two, a second bank has just been shut down by federal regulators, Signature Bank. So one emerging understanding is that smaller regional banks are more at risk than the big investment banks like City and Chase. Watch San Francisco's First Republic Bank manana, meaning today. Here is a list of of the top companies that had deposits with Silicon Valley Bank. And I put that, that link is in the show notes. It's to a substack called Usual Whales. Please note that Roku is on the top of the list with a $487 million, Roku. I'm just gonna pause there a second. Okay, I wanted to make sure I was still hooked in. Okay, less than 7% of depositors at Silicon Valley Bank are covered by FDIC and will, and will be made whole. I'm going to read that again. Less than 7% of depositors at SVB are covered by FDIC, that's the federal insurance for banks, and will be made whole. So the, so the great majority of accounts were business accounts with more than $250,000 and so are not eligible for FDIC coverage. So there will have to be, so they will have to be rescued by larger private asset players. Then today, this morning, before Wall Street opening, Biden's ga Biden gave a speech that had no impact on pre-market plummeting regional bank stocks that has continued after the opening. Oh, sorry, that has continued after the opening even more that, that it has resulted in First Republic stock, the regional bank stock index and Schwab stocks have all been paused because of volatility. It does not appear that, that what the Fed Reserve did over the weekend has appeased the market, Bloomberg reported just now. As I wrote yesterday, meaning Sunday, the regional bank stocks and their retail bank businesses are most at risk having, of having their stocks plummeting to zero and or failing and being shut down by FDIC. The two-year treasury bond market has collapsed the greatest since the Great Depression. The volatility is truly historic, quote, massive moves, unquote, says Bloomberg right now. And then the second update today, First Republic stock unpaused and dropped even more. It's down 75%. People, this is a complete bipartisan capitalist shit show failure. So those were the set of emails that caused me to want to have this um, conversation. I definitely would like people to call in with their thoughts, what they know, and I'm very happy to be exploring kind of online articles as we go. Good morning, Andrew. Welcome. Thanks, Amanda. How's it going? It's well, you know, looks like there's some banks collapsing. <laughs> Fortunately, I'm not in one, so woohoo. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I had a couple of thoughts. Um one piece of news that I wanted to remind people of that I don't think got enough coverage is that in 2019, uh, before any of the um, COVID crisis could be blamed for, or, you know, or mismanagement of the said COVID crisis could be blamed for economic collapses, there were a number of banks that 
had a uh, liquidity crisis. And I, I think it was three major banks. I can't remember which ones, but I'll try and find articles and post them once my hands are free in a minute. Um, but because the, of the passage of TARP in 2009, most of the time this stuff flies under the radar as much as can be managed. Um, and I think that the fact that this is getting a lot of reporting now kind of means that this same process that was rearing its head every so often, repeatedly since 2008, but notably, like I mentioned in 2019, um, where they'll inject hundreds of billions or even trillions of dollars without um, any discussion in Congress. That's basically what the TARP Act did, is it allowed uh, injection of of funds whenever there was uh, something that rose to the threshold of the liquidity crisis, and that threshold can kind of be changed. Um, so the fact that this is getting a lot of reporting now, I mean, it could mean a number of things. It could mean that the financial, um, you know, the, the gravity of the situation is actually a lot worse than it was in 2019. It could be sort of like a, a Watergate scenario where they decide to start reporting on Watergate to tamp down uh, the public's attention on other topics. Notably, the, the discovery of COINTELPRO was kind of uh, swamped by Watergate reporting. And so I wonder if there's, sort of, if there's not a sort of a combination of factors around this. Um, the other thing that you mentioned that was interesting about Roku is that, um, you know, all of the different social media platforms and all of the different streaming platforms um, would love it if they were the only one. Um, and I kind of I kind of wonder if Roku is sort of like the Snapchat of the streaming networks where it's like it's hanging on because people like the platform. Um, but it's like still kind of at the, the rear of the pack of the different streaming platforms. Um, so I'll, I'll try and find the um, the articles. I had one other comment I wanted to make about public banks. If you have a, oh, if you have another minute to give me, yeah, but for we sure. can pause for a minute. For, for sure. I'm going to invite you up to the panel just to make it a little easier. All right. All right, cool. So, sorry, I'm eating. Uh, we discussed on call in, uh, and by we, I mean various uh, of our overlapping Venn diagram, flower of life looking communities here on Colin. We've talked a bit about the fact that North Dakota has a public bank. Um, Roger <clears throat> Meadows, who is often on Savvy's late night shows on here, who also has been going, uh, he's, in, he's a lawyer in New York. He's been going with, oh, um, uh, I can't remember her name, the woman who runs uh, Blue Moon Red Wine. Um, and they've been going and pressuring um, AOC or Jamal Bowman recently in public and because there's no other way to, to talk to these people. Uh, but he's been a huge advocate recently of pushing for municipal and state level banks. He was just saying uh, last night that, and he's repeated this multiple times, that California passed a bill that allows for, I think, 10 municipal public banks to be started. And I think San Francisco voted to have one. Um, and I, I don't know the format of these. I don't know if it's really ideal. It could just be that, you know, they could be, a public bank could be easily co-opted by private banks, uh, depending how the legislation is written and enacted.
But I do think that we should be really pushing hard for uh, public banks at the state level and the municipal level, wherever we are, especially in ballot initiative states. And if you're not in a ballot initiative state, I mean, there's plenty of uh, advice we could be taking from people like Ralph Nader on how to pressure politicians to do what you want, um, or people who are more militant than Ralph Nader as well, I'm sure have plenty of ideas. But if, if we had public banks with a citizen's board um, overseeing the, the, the actions of the public bank, you could have a situation where some people could say, I don't want my money to be in a pool for investment. Um, or if it isn't a pool for investment, I want it in the lowest risk. And the public could interact um, as a result of having a public board overseeing the bank and decide where their money is invested. So a public bank could very easily divest from, uh, you know, the fishing industry, which is mostly run on slave labor or the fossil fuel industry. Um, there's all sorts of different possibilities for ethical um, and, and really like stable uh, savings for funds. But also there's huge possibilities for what the what the municipality or the state level governments could then invest in more securely by nature of having a public bank. So that's that's kind of my my first reaction to seeing news like this. Um, but I wonder. Uh, I really appreciate that. And I do want to plug your show later today on ballot initiatives. I noticed was coming up like a little before six tonight. And I think Sabby said that she's doing a thing on public banking on Thursday. Do you know about oh, that? Rad. Um, yeah, I did hear her mention that. Also, I just uh, should say that was a mistake on my part. I, I wanted to have a panel with Roger. Um, I, I will invite you as a guest on the panel too, Amanda, because I know you've done like local politics organizing before. But that I wanted to schedule that for the 21st because I won't have time oh, to fully prepare okay. a show this week. Okay. But thank you for plugging that. I, I'll just uh, I'll, I'll plug it. I'll, I'll plug change it the date right week. now. Okay. <laughs> Jonathan, welcome. Thank you for being here. Yeah, fun fact, that uh, bank that collapsed this morning is Barney Frank's bank. Go figure. Uh, that's the one that he uh, he was uh, uh, he immediately left Congress to go on the board of, and it turns out he was taking lucrative consulting fees while he was writing the Dodd-Frank Act, and he was poo-pooing, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren when she said, uh, you know, whatever we think of Elizabeth Warren, I'm a, I'm a big snake emojis guy, but she was right about, like, we need to, you know, reinstate the Glass-Steagall separations and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, the karma police caught up with Barney Frank and his bank. Uh, although, you know, in this case, um, it's um, you were asking about Jack Rasmus earlier. Like he's one of those um, older, you know, trained in the older style. Um, and unfortunately he's not kept up with modern times in a lot of ways. Um, and he, so he gets like 70 to 80% of the, of the way there and then kind of jumps the rails when it comes to money, finance and banking. And, you know, he's been, like, talking about, like, the, you know, QE equals printing money and the Fed prints money. And I'm like, okay, you don't understand how modern money and banking works. Uh, although QE is kind of connected to this in a sense. Uh, we just did a – RP just did a video with uh, with Professor Steve Keen, the uh, 
Australian heterodox economist who kind of uh, went through the, the balance sheet issues. But the Fed 100 uh, percent did do this stuff, although the, those medium sized banks that collapsed were also guilty of, of not uh, hedging or diversifying some of their their asset holdings. And what happens is, like, when the Fed changes interest rates on the bonds, like, especially the long-term, you know, federal treasury bonds and things like that, um, they are, uh, you know, if you bought your your bonds at, like, uh, you know, a 30-year bond at, like, a 1% yield, and then the Fed raises interest rates uh, and starts selling bonds, at, you know, 30-year bonds at, like, 3% yields, uh, you're basically not going to on the secondary markets, which banks kind of rely on to uh, to trade their uh, near money assets for actual cash when they need it. Um, they're not going to be able to sell it for its full value, right? So basically, their options are sit on it for 30 years and wait till it matures, and then they can get the full face value, which they don't want to do, or sell it for half its value on the secondary market. And, you know, try to recoup what you can. And that's that's basically the kind of thing that happened. There was a run on the bank and they were forced to kind of liquidate their assets, but they couldn't sell off their assets for their full face value. And, um, you know, that caused, um, you know, the it caused basically a, a collapse like the. FDIC had to come in and, and basically put them into receivership, which frankly is what they should have done in the wake of the 2008 crash as well, but they didn't do that. Um, and they didn't, they kind of didn't put them uh, to rights. But uh, I think there is like a little bit of, uh, it's, it's definitely like there's a little bit of contagion, but it's relatively contained by the FDIC and basically the FDIC is now basically saying they're going to treat even uninsured accounts um, as though they were FDIC insured and in putting them in receivership, they're basically going to make sure that the account holders get paid first uh, so that you don't have any uh, banking executives with golden parachutes basically taking and running and things like that. Uh, so most of these people are going to get most of their money back. The people that are going to take a hit are uh, large institutional investors, people that hold um, basically um, you know bondholders in the banks, like uh, basically people that hold shares of stock, the equivalent of shares of stock in the bank itself, um, are going to take a haircut and um, – and that sort of thing, but uh, you know there there remains you know issues if um, you know this were to happen in a much bigger bank. Uh, there's a lot of companies that would have a lot of trouble meeting their payroll and things like that. Right. At timely, those things tend to spiral. So obviously, there are things that need to be taken very seriously. But um, you know, I, I do think, um, you know, Jack Rasmus and, and some of these other uh, people that are, um, you know, they're, they're, they tend to jump the rails and start saying, oh, the Fed is printing money and, and doing all kinds of other stuff that they're actually not doing. What the Fed did was plenty bad enough and irritable enough, but it, it's the kind of stuff that we know they have been doing that they shouldn't have been doing. 
And that, frankly, they ought to know better than to do, too. Like, all of this was because the Fed uh, basically wanted to discipline the labor market. Okay? Like, they knew, like, and they've known for years, and there's papers on the Fed website basically saying raising interest rates doesn't help fight inflation. It doesn't stop inflation. It Like, that, that stuff doesn't work. They want to induce a recession to discipline labor and to discipline the labor market and cause a lot of layoffs and cause a lot of people to be unemployed so that basically they'll take lower wages again and, uh, you know, the the rich people will, will basically be able to cut corners on a labor level once again. And they'll stop this wave of unionization and all that other good stuff that, um, you know, speculators in finance hate. So it's really, they fucked around just for one second. Yeah, I think what's really interesting is that, um, like with many different things that are issues of major public interest, you'll have the same publications internally and also across multiple different publications and news outlets talk out of both sides of their mouth. And you've had people on, um, you know, NBC and Fox Business and other networks openly admit that that's what uh, raising the interest rates is supposed to do is to, um, you know, make it a more uh, employer, uh, more of an employer's labor market rather than a worker's labor market. And as a result of major uh, waves of retirements, both from a sort of generational, um, you know, timer that was set to go anyways, and also, in some cases, was accelerated because of, you know, how rapidly labor conditions were deteriorating under uh, the COVID uh, lockdown procedures. There's a huge shortage in all these different sectors. And I'm not even sure that raising the interest rates to discipline the labor market as as kind of per usual will work this time. But I wonder both what do both of you think about do you think it will actually work? I mean, like how far will they push it before it starts to have other uh, tangential and, and from the ruling class capitalist perspective, un, undesirable consequences? And my other question is, uh, what would be the best response to showcase this type of, uh, you know, talking out of both sides of the mouth where you have some people saying, oh, no, this is to, to um, prevent inflation. And you have other people telling the truth and saying, no, this is to discipline the labor market. You know, I've heard people say uh, pretty direct quotes. Um, always a shout out to Case Study QB for watching all this crap and curating it for us so I don't have to watch it in its entirety. But people are saying things like, yeah, um, it's really ridiculous. We got to we got to eradicate the savings that people were able to accrue as a result of unemployment uh, benefit boosts that took place under uh, mostly under the Trump the latter years of the Trump administration, um, they're like, we have to get rid of that savings. We have to lay people off and we need to, um, you know, really remove the the power from the worker in this labor market. How, how do we, I guess, make use of those truth telling moments in the best possible way? Um, that's not just like self-referential within our own uh, online political discussion. Well, I suppose if I knew that, I'd have a I'd have a bigger salary. You got an idea on that, John? 
I mean, we've definitely been trying. Like, we post little clips on YouTube. I post them in response to videos. Uh, you've got uh, not only, you know, the, the actual bankers in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, um, you know, at their, at their little convention of the, the Fed governors, but uh, you've got, um, you know, even um, uh, Mitch McConnell basically saying that stuff publicly. And, you know, it's in the newspapers and not just the lefty newspapers either, but, you know, it's in mainstream newspapers. And, um, you know, average people, I think, don't, it doesn't really seem to penetrate because they're too busy trying to survive to be reading that section of the newspaper and realizing how important it is and or realizing what it means because sometimes they'll use florid language to say those things or they'll make those kinds of comments but unless you're sitting there watching cnbc or you're the type of guy that wants to know what's happening in the bond market today uh you're not going to be listening to these people's public pronouncements or putting much stock in them and that's kind of the challenge that um you know i think people like us face that kind of uphill battle Telling people, yes, you need to pay attention to this. Yes, you need to understand what's going on. Here, this is what it means to you. And it's really hard to reach people on a large scale, especially when, you know, because I had other Jonathan, uh, you know, we were, uh, he sent me a couple of, of videos to watch from analysts he liked, and I sent him a link to a live stream with, um, with Steve Keen. Uh, and you know, like you list, Steve Keen breaks it down pretty in a pretty straightforward way, um, in a sense. But you know, there's a lot of jargon involved. There's a lot of things with balance sheets that it takes at least some, um, you know, previous level of of knowledge to to understand. Uh, and if you don't have at least some baseline level of knowledge of how money and banking works. Um, you know, even like, a, you know, the baseline level that, uh, you know, I'll say even even Jack Rasmus has this uh, this baseline level of knowledge, like the fundamentals of it, uh, your eyes are just going to glaze over when they're talking about, uh, you know, this balance sheet and reserve accounting and um, and, you know, assets and liabilities and liquidity and and shit like that like basically like if you don't if you're not familiar with what those things mean it wasn't that long ago that i wasn't and i remember what it was like my eyes would glaze over when you know uh, relatives of mine that were you know stockbrokers or whatever uh would would talk about that shit i'm like oh boring and it's not like it's it's got life and death consequences and, and uh you know these things ripple out and you need to know when they're going to ripple out to you and how they're going to affect you. And you need to know if your checks aren't going to cash. You know, you need to know if you're not going to be able to pay your bills at the end of the month. You need to know that stuff. And you need to know why. And you need to know where it's coming from. And you need to know who did it. Yeah, totally. And this is the part where I say it takes people at least six times hearing something before it actually clicks in their brain what it is, and then they can start really paying attention to more detail. So that part of the project of Colin to me is doing these kinds of things that feel awfully repetitive to some of us, but because it's the first time somebody's heard it, 
and their eyes have glazed over, or the fourth time and their eyes are glazing over, we're making progress, you know? Yeah, I don't blame people for not getting it. Like, I, when I first started teaching myself this stuff, like, it, it took a long time, and it's only from sheer stubbornness that I sat with this stuff till I understood it. And it took time. It took time. It took a lot of effort. And it was not, this is not something that it's super simple. Now, I try to find ways of making it simpler for other people than what I faced. But, you know, there's, I like, that's an experimental process. Like, it's not something that, uh, you know, there's a natural magic bullet for. And, um, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's a tricky, tricky thing. So the question Andrew asked, there, there isn't a super easy answer for, but we're certainly probing and and experimenting and and trying with it. And it's not just us; it's people that know considerably less than us, but at least are willing to ask the question. So you will see people like um, there's a couple of guys at the Intercept that have been trying to follow this sort of thing. Um, you know, they don't get it; they don't always get it spot on, but but they're talking to people, they're finding things out, and they are reporting some really important shit as it happens, including the kind of stuff that Andrew was talking about where people are, are just coming out and saying it. They're like, you know, they're, they're putting these kinds of statement with the, the meme with the guy saying, Oh my God, he admitted. And that's exactly what like they're, they're not even bothering to hide it anymore, which is almost more alarming than when they were being sneaky about it. Well, it's kind of like um, if you watch, uh, speech at the Atlantic Council. The vibe in that room is that we're here with our peers discussing business together. It doesn't feel like a public event. And they are publicizing it, um, I think, for a few different reasons, um, which I don't really think, I don't know, I could I could spend too long talking about that. But I'll just say, like, I think they publicize it both out of um, kind of like obliviousness to the fact that other people will see this who are whose class interests are directly opposed to the Atlantic Council or Fox Business right. and they'll be horrified and they also put it out there I think not out of obliviousness but out of like almost a necessity where if it's this secret thing like the Bilderberg group then everyone kind of gets fixated on it and freaks out a little bit when the meeting is in town and so I think they they're kind of hoping they strike a balance between uh people wanting to see what's going on behind the closed door. So there's a balance between opening the door and putting various filters on the glass so that hopefully yeah. only their class allies will really make use of that information. Uh, but I guess one other quick thing that I'll say is that I think that increasingly it's just more and more um, obvious to me and something that I want to repeat over and over again, that media is not really the way that uh, at least the, the the media channels that we have are not really the way that we will be able to communicate. If we're interested in communicating this to rank and file um, workers who could unionize or could do wildcat strike action but are not, um, is not going to be through the existing media channels that we already utilize. And I'm thinking about like historic examples of the Chinese communists going and spending a ton of time help physically in, in contact with the peasantry, the largely agrarian peasantry of China, not only talking to them and running 
literacy campaigns, but also just helping out around um, their agricultural operations. And similarly with the Vietnamese communists, the only um, examples that kind of countervene what I'm saying are, sorry, hold on, the trash truck is here, I think. Yep. Um, I, so I got to run for a second, but I guess what I'm saying is like, the only examples where this is different is something like where Lenin was in Switzerland or Finland for a while, publishing things and sending them into Russia and then having that material distributed in really like more simplified pamphlets um, and having people while they're working on literacy campaigns doing this type of stuff. Um, and so while I don't think we necessarily need like a learn your alphabet and basic uh, reading skills literacy campaign as badly in the United States um, as were as commission as conditions demanded in the past in these examples that I'm bringing up. Um, but I do think that like a workers literacy campaign would be very uh, interesting. And so again, I'll probably just be keeping an eye on what workers strike back is going to do and what the RBN chapters are going to do. And if there's some type of way I can participate, that's probably where I will be focusing my uh, my eye of Sauron against uh, the capitalists. <laughs> also, Derek bounced and, and Jay know. was in the queue, but she's out now. Yeah. I, I saw that and I invited her up to the panel um, and I just sent Derek a text to, to, to come back. We'll see if he does. Jade, if you'd like to call in, you're welcome. Hey, BK. Hey. I also wanted to note that Sinway noted at the beginning in the chat, if you'd like to come up and talk about what they were saying on Congo Catch on this topic, you're welcome, Sinway. BK. Um, I think I've overheard that uh, Jade has a little kid, so she might be doing little kid stuff and be back. Cool. But uh, I just, I, I don't really understand uh, what a bank does. I'm going to admit, like, I don't understand the difference between a bank and a credit union. Um, and uh, I know that it, I've understood it in the past. So if I could get explained just like what a hedge fund is, what a bit like. Like, if it's if it can't be encapsulated real quick, I'll go do my own research. But I just thought that might be like a helpful thing to get get started. And I'm gonna I'm gonna. Okay, BK, thank you. Um, Jonathan or Andrew want to tackle that? I don't really have much of. A... I, I would have to Wikipedia it, so unless somebody has, maybe both of you are busy. Sinway, you want, what's up, Jonathan? Can you answer that? Uh, like the 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 discrepancies between like a bank and a credit union are are slightly more complicated, but a hedge fund um, is is technically uh, it, it's it's considered a, a shadow banking institution. It, it's not technically. A bank. It just functions like one in the finance system. Um, uh, there, and there's there's a whole bunch of literature on the shadow banking system and shadow finance system. Like they tend, uh, you know, they're they're investment vehicles, but they tend not to um, like not to be FDIC insured. Uh, they're much more speculative. Um, and they are not subject to any of the regulations that banks are subject to 
to keep depositors, uh, you know, money safe from that kind of behavior. Its uh, vehicle is deliberately set up to get around banking regulations. Um, so, yeah, those those have been a huge part of uh, every speculative bubble and every major collapse uh, of the last uh, forty or fifty years. Um, you know, hedge funds and um, and what do you call them? Um, like uh, little venture capital institutions of various sorts. Uh, yeah, those. So that's like that's a whole different uh, sector of the economy. Um, credit unions are banks, but um, like it's it's easier just to look that up on Wikipedia, like what the difference is between a credit or or on on Google, because like there's a bunch of subtle. Uh, differences between a regular bank and a credit union, and uh, you know, there's there's a couple of other small types, um, of smaller types of banks that are mostly going extinct these days. But uh, there's a few uh, that uh, that still survive that are that are um, you know more like that are subject to uh, it's basically a simpler style of uh, a more straightforward style of of banking. Uh, that is more locally oriented and less uh, investment uh, oriented. But um, yeah, anyway, that's that's how I would answer that. Like ultimately, like you're, I'm, I'm afraid, BK, you're, you're you're definitely. If you want the details, you're probably going to have to uh, do a Google search. But there are little charts that outline those those differences that you can get from those Google searches uh, that will make it a little easier to to parse those things apart. Um, you know, I, I would definitely also separate conventional banking institutions, including credit unions from, uh, the hedge fund sector. And, uh, you know, you might want to do some, some dives into, uh, you know, the role of that sector in, in the various collapses. Uh, that's an interesting rabbit hole. Yeah, I think that might be an interesting topic for a show coming up. So, but I'm going to have to do some research before I before I'm there. But I appreciate the question. Sinway, you want to tell us what you were seeing on Convo Couch? Uh, it was a lot of detail, so I would Well, I don't expect to... the detail. Was it good? Informative? It it was. Um, well, one of the things is like it, one of the topics I was touched on is how it's going to affect like globally and emphasizing the fact that the U.S. value of the dollar is like whatever the U.S. says its value is. Well, besides like probably dictating like whatever petrodollar it is. But that's also like dependent on like, um, I guess whatever they say the price of the oil from the other countries are. So... Is what well, the it. oil is high. Oh, geez. The the oil is high, and so um, it's not a direct conversion necessarily from oil prices to U.S. dollars because the way the petrodollar functions, particularly with the Saudis and other Gulf state uh, monarchies that support the petrodollar, is that they they not only do up until recently most of their oil transactions in U.S. dollars, but they also 
reinvest a gigantic portion of their oil revenues into U.S. Treasury bonds. Uh, so it's like a little bit more convoluted. So it doesn't necessarily mean if the if the barrel of oil is high, then the dollar is also high. It can be it can be more complicated than that. Uh, but I, I'm glad you brought up this point, though, Sinway, about the like international complications from this, because <clears throat> there still is not, you know, the, the BRICS International Development Bank is still not really up and running. Um, the the Sur currency that is being pioneered between Argentina and Brazil right now um, is still not up and running. Uh, there's there's possibilities that China could um, do a currency swap with the Federal Reserves of other countries like they've just done with Argentina, which would allow these countries to retain more of their dollar reserves to pay off their debts and not default. And so what Argentina could do is use the yuan that they have from their currency swap to do the kind of nuts and bolts trade that they need to do and use all the dollars that they have for um, paying off their sovereign debts. But there, it's not, the infrastructure is not there yet to prevent this from being um, a sort of like Volcker shock level default inter internationally. There's still a lot of countries that are, are not, they haven't been as proactive in their governments at um, preparing for this type of a situation. And they're not gonna be able to insulate themselves from a default on the debt. So this is another thing that's been in my mind is like maybe the a uh, couple of banks are being allowed to fail and this is being reported more widely um, so that it can be described as like a whoops, it's just a sort of a natural disaster of finance. That means that we have to uh, default all these countries who have who are starting to join the BRICS complex. Um, we'll have to default them and it'll set them back on their trajectory towards a little bit more financial independence or multipolarity. So I, I'm glad you brought up the international part because I kind of totally forgot to, to, to mention it. In this. Yeah. Um, so I guess, again, I would have to watch the convo couch thing about like to know more in depth, obviously, but um, that's that was a help. That was helpful input. Thank you, Sinway. I appreciate that. Jonathan, yeah. did you want to speak to? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the uh, the convo couch guys are uh, people that uh, get into uh, frequent arguments with us on Twitter. Uh, they don't. They don't really know uh, all that all that much about uh, macroeconomics. But uh, yeah, I think I do think they sometimes overstate the the whole uh, petrodollar thing. The U.S. had uh, basically uh, a great was basically the world's loan shark and had basically all the power that it has now. Essentially, since Bretton Woods uh, at the end of World War II, and uh, especially now since we went to uh, you know 1971 to the pure fiat dollar. Uh, it basically, we've been the world's loan shark, um, and uh, and that's that's been a huge chunk of how we spread our empire. Like the the petrodollar definitely helps us do that, but it's it's more about uh, controlling the flow of oil than it is about the the value of the uh, of the dollar. And you know the dollar, even if we you know there, there stopped being a petrodollar thing. 
we would still like something like right now we're like uh, I think we're at like seventy percent of, of global finance transactions use the dollar as like the numeraire, the medium of exchange. And you know, if we went off the petrodollar, it would probably be down to like fifty percent. Uh, and you know, it, it would not it would not make a, a huge huge difference. But in this case, like this particular collapse is mostly affecting uh, these kind of smaller banking institutions, like uh, you know uh, the SVB, and uh, and it, the it doesn't seem to have like I think those bigger institutions like Chase, Bank of America, Citigroup. Uh, and those sorts of things seem to have hedged a little better, have a more diversified portfolio, um, and are more insulated against this kind of shock. Although it might be a warning to the Fed, okay, time to stop hiking interest rates. They thought they were going to do the Paul Volcker thing, uh, and it looks like uh, you know uh, they're they're getting some blowback from. Uh, the big muckety mucks on Wall Street now uh, saying don't do that, and they listen to those guys in ways they never listen to us. So, right. uh, which brings me back to that question that Andrew was asking about: how do we how do we get this message out? Because it's like, well, I have a hard time linking what the bond Treasury bond rate does to me in my life on the day to day. And, and collapsing banks, if my money's not in that bank, that it does have an effect on me, but I don't know what to do about it. And I don't know that I can do anything, because then that goes back to that study that shows that, like, nobody actually has any influence about what anybody in Congress or in charge of things is doing. Oh, you mean the Gillens and Page study? Yes. The, that the Princeton guys did? Yes, yeah. the Princeton study. But they've done some other good work, too, that people should pay attention to. I think uh, Gillens uh, wrote a book called uh, Why Americans Hate Welfare, and it's basically all about the means-tested programs people hate and uh, universal programs like Social Security people love. And, you know, it's got all, all the little receipts in there. It was written in the 90s, but it's still very valid. I'm sorry, my cat is making trouble. I'm actually have to die. Off okay. Because Thank you for I, your I'm just getting off of a. Yeah, like I just got off a 48 hour shift on the ambulance. Oh, like I need to. You need some. I need to. Thank you. I need to eat something. I need to play with the cat a little, and then I need to go to sleep. Thank yeah. you so much, Jonathan. Jonathan. No problem. If yeah. Not. Go ahead. Yeah. Um. I guess like for people who are not literate on all of these issues. Like, where would you say the best starting place is to, you know, just start getting educated about things? Um, well, the like the Real Progressives website uh, has some introductory materials, and we are working on uh, developing, uh, you know, those. Uh, we've got like a, a an online university software. Uh, we're working on setting up some easy to use online courses like Udemy style uh, courses that people can can take and, and go through some of the basics. Um, there's also, you know, some, some books that I would recommend on, uh, you know, there was one called Money from Nothing. It's by uh, uh, Robert Hockett. 
uh, 1,000 Castaways uh, by Clint Ballinger. Uh, those are good starting points on, uh, you know, the the foundation that I think we should have for, um, you know, how an economy develops and all of that stuff is uh, what is money? And that's a question almost yeah. nobody can really answer. And, you know, the, the thousand castaways, uh, the idea of Clint's is basically, uh, you know, it's a kind of thing that you have to develop when, uh, you know, it doesn't work with, you know, it's not necessary when you have five, 10, 50, a hundred people, but when you get so many people around that people can't just trust each other, uh, or know each other that they're, that they're doing business with, uh, then you need some sort of, um, uh, medium that way, a credit medium, something along those lines. Anyway, like it, they're short books, like those two books, and those are kind of of good uh, introductory texts to uh, what is money, where does it come from, um, and that sort of thing. And you know, the, there's like a sequence of of things that get progressively more difficult. We're kind of trying to hash out what we should include in the the introductory series, like what is 101, because it's real easy to forget when you know this stuff, what it was like not knowing it and what people are going to find intimidating uh, and what they're not. And the idea, of course, like I was saying earlier, I don't know if you were here for that, but uh, the idea, because I had a hard time teaching myself this stuff. It was just sheer stubbornness. The idea is to make it easier for you than it was for me. Yeah. So we're we're working on distilling that stuff, but there are a bunch of little introductory materials that will at least give you kind of a piecemeal uh, place to start on some of these uh, issues on the Real Progressives website already. I apologize for the clunkiness we're working on redoing it. Hey, um, Jonathan. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. you. That's helpful. Yeah. I'm curious. Have you you know Khan Academy, right? Uh, yeah. Have you ever seen any of uh, Sal Khan's um, uh, explanations for like origins of money and banking and all that. I have Academy site. I have not. I got sent there for uh, differential equations yes. course I never took. So yeah, he's obviously really good at that. And and the three blue on brown guy. I don't know if you know him, Grant, Grant Sanderson. He started off there, and he's a really gifted teacher. But I was just curious because I I watched that and everything, not everything, but so much became so much clearer. Like all, all the things of fractional reserve and just the idea. And so that um, um, the double entry bookkeeping, he take he, he really takes you through all that and explains it so clearly. And I think I brought it up before, and some people have been skeptical, like because of not under knowing his politics, but I really think there's some real fundamental things you can get out of the way with a good teacher like that, uh, without being too worried about being indoctrinated. You, you're just understanding that what you're learning is like the basics and sort of the mechanics of how that stuff works. So I just wanted to I'll take that. a look. I'll take a look. That That's an interesting, you know, because like I said, if this guy has a better way of teaching it, of ordering the sequence, of explaining things, of framing things that we can use for that intro course, then that's good stuff. So I will check that out. There's a lot to... And uh, I will see what we can extract. There's a lot to sort 
through. So I, I will actually just send to you the the chapter. I'm... I appreciate Bill, that. Will you post links here as well? Absolutely. Yep. I was also going to mention. All right, Norman Bates says hello. Hi, Norman Bates. Hello. <laughs> he says. Uh, I was going to say. Um, I also tend to like Mark Blythe. Uh, if you, I'll, I'll try and find some links from when he's just giving a talk. The thing is, he hasn't really produced uh, any type of like intro series or manual like Jonathan's talking about, which I think is going to be very useful. But I think Mark Blythe tends to just have a, a pretty engaging way of speaking, so I don't get tired out listening to him, really. And he'll talk um, and explain in pretty quick fashion, not too wordy of terms, you know, what exactly is money, what exactly is uh, public debt and private debt, how do they interact with each other, these type of things. Um, so maybe, Phil, if you post some links here, and also will you post some in the Discord, and then maybe we can start a, I think we do already have like a finance uh, or economics channel where we can. And um, cool. Yeah, and in the meantime, for people who don't know, um, is there, you know, like just the best source for um, analysis for people about the implications of what's going on um, in our regular everyday life? I'm not sure a whole lot of people even have done that analysis because the people who do these analyses do it for the rich people. You yeah, know I mean? anyone covering this from the aspect of like the working class, I know, you know. You know I, what I mean? Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Phil? Well, if I understand what you're asking, I, I really think, uh, well, Jonathan would know better because I think you're actually working with the real progressives guys, right? But when I listen to the Macro and Cheese podcast, it really feels like that. It feels like... Uh, they know kind of what's going on at the time and they're analyzing it from the perspective that you mean. And there's other people I listen to, but uh, they're a little bit harder to understand for me. I don't know, always like, I don't know, guys like Steve Keen always has a really interesting analysis. Um, I subscribe to his Patreon, but like I said, it's not as clear as, as, um, the Mac when she's guys, but yeah, Jonathan, do you know? Yeah, Steve. Well, uh, yeah, I was going to say macro and cheese is meant to be that. Although, like I said, sometimes, uh, you know, he, like, uh, Grumbine, uh, does fall into the trap of, uh, sometimes speaking, uh, you know, not like he does de definitely try to be more engaged with people that are, are less economically literate. But, you know, sometimes when he's discussing some of these concepts, he does fall into the trap of, um, you know, of assuming a, a certain level of prior knowledge, which is something that I'm running into. I, I forget who it was that asked me to look into what were the best five macro and cheese episodes for somebody who's just learning MMT. And I go through some of these episodes and, like, I'm, you know, even some of these ones that were meant to be like MMT basics, like were, uh, to my mind, a little bit uh, jargon head. So that's something you can get through, but it is something 
like that Steve Grumbine, I know, makes an effort not to do. And that's as, as uh, you know, he talks to relatively high-level economists, including uh, he was on a live stream with Steve Keen today. I think there's a macro and cheese episode coming up with Steve Keen. Uh, he's talked to Mike, Mark Blythe before, actually. He's been on the Macro and Cheese podcast. Um, uh, you know, he's not an MMTer, but he's close enough. And, uh, you know, he wrote that great book, uh, Austerity, History of a Dangerous Idea, which I highly recommend. Um, and he's got a whole bunch of lectures on YouTube. Um, you know, even if you don't fully understand everything he's saying, like he says it in a cool accent, and that definitely makes a difference. Um, trying to think. Um, you know, you know, Ron, Ron Gray is. Yeah, Ron Gray is is a, a regular guest on the uh, on the Macro and Cheese podcast. Right. Um, he, yeah. Well, he. So I've heard him. Usually, I think he's a guest for things that have to do with like the central bank digital currencies, eCash, because I think that's really his thing. But I've noticed if you ever find a video with him explaining a, any other concept, I find it to be very clear um, and very good to learn from. That's, that's Yeah, cool. he's he founded a, a group called Money on the Left, um, you know, that has uh, some of our, our favorite uh, MMT economists, Nathan Tankis, um, and a few others, uh, although they do tend to talk in in very esoteric terms when they're not babysat by somebody like Steve Grumbine. Um, you know, Steve Grumbine is good at getting people like that to speak in plain English. Um, if you if you let, uh, you know, Ron and Nathan Tankis talk to just each other, uh, they'll be completely unintelligible and Although for people like me, you know, it can be fun to get high and listen to them, you know, talk about uh, money and banking and balance sheets and and uh, what you could possibly do with this banking institution or that one and blah, blah, blah. But, um, yeah, Rohan Gray uh, is a pretty versatile guy. Um, can also be a little bit of a prick in person, but, uh, you know, being, being uh, right about things doesn't prevent you from from being that, unfortunately. But yeah, anyway, that's all I got. I, I'm, I'm fading fast. You. I'm about yes. to fall asleep here. Thank you for staying and answering those questions for me. I really. No problem. And I'm, I'm generally available anytime. Thank you, Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan, what's on your mind? Just Jade's question about what does this mean for working people? It's like this incident is not what really means something for working people. It's the system having been what it's been for 40 years that means something for working people. It's the it's been a machine of upward wealth mobilization the entire time. And this is just sort of a periodic symptomatic event. It's, it's sort of a, a recurring event that, that gets people all excited. But it's like being excited about uh, sneezing when you are going to die of COVID or something. It's like the sneeze is just a sneeze. It's like, yeah, it's a big violent event, but it's not the disease itself. And the creation of like the creation of scarcity. And yeah, the, 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 
pitting the workers against each other by trying to create Can demand I destruction. My real quick, Jonathan. Yeah. Yeah. Like my question is just like, what are the best sources to watch for not just this event, but like just generally um, people who are tracking the economy and want to communicate what might be coming down the line to working class people. So, um, yeah, I, I subscribe to Blockworks Macro. Broadly. And I subscribe to, yeah, Blockworks Macro, Money and Macro, Macro and Cheese. So those are the three macro podcasts I listen to. And then there's one called Real Vision that I listen to. But again, like Amanda said, these are for people. These are for money managers mostly, but they do include sometimes just like they would talk about it, like as if they were talking about the weather. You know, what, what's going to happen to working people because it does affect, it is part of the system. It does create demand destruction when, when people don't have any money. And so that's why they're like, they'll, they'll worry about the fed. They're sitting there, their market, they have funds that they manage, heads funds, mutual funds, whatever. And they're like, yeah, okay. The fed is uh, doing all this stuff to create demand destruction. But when consumer when, when domestic consumption is such a high percentage of GDP, then this is not going to be good for markets going forward. So they're like, they'll use that whole thing to justify a bearish outlook. And we've been in a bear market for a while, but you have to, you have to be able to read between the lines. But if you're looking for somebody to explain what monetary policy means in terms of like what's coming down the pipe to working people, like I just go back to my beginning point and say, it's not about this week's monetary policy or like today's events. You just have to look at the structure of the other thing and how there's always going to be bankruptcies and how the bankruptcies are always going to involve the selling of assets to people who buy assets to speculate on assets. So that's a movement of assets from people who are using them to produce things to people right. who and that's have already them. happening. That's already yeah. happening. Right and then now. more and more things are going to go into fewer and fewer hands. They're like when Volcker did this, all the savings and loan crisis, like the number of banks in the world got cut in half. Now it's going to happen again until there's just five left. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of already happened, but this it's is, just going to keep happening. Andrew, this is why I kind of, uh, sorry, I just want to jump in. Cause I, I actually have to go uh, in like one minute, but okay. I was going to say to Jonathan's last point that this is why I do think it will be more like the Volcker uh, crisis in the 80s, and I I do think this will have broad-ranging international effects. Um, I, I think I'm kind of viewing it as, like I said earlier, um, a semi-guided or semi-intentional um, attack on the developing world's attempts to form BRICS and to make it into an alternative for um, you know, investment, the source of investment funds and uh, for development. Um, so I do think that, you know, if the, even though we're, we've just been talking mostly about domestic um, impacts of this, I do think it'll be international. And the other thing I was going to say uh, to Jade's question, I posted a few links to some relatively short Mark Blythe uh, talks earlier. And also I posted a link to last week's um, geopolitical economy report uh, talk with Michael Hudson and Radhika Desai. They've been doing it weekly and it's been very good so far. 
But again, that's pretty wordy. So I know Jonathan, you've already made a graphic to try to explain the the basic mechanisms of the Fed. It's that yeah, kind of like slide by again. slide thing. Yeah, post it and let's try to make more uh, things like that. Because even with that graphic, I feel like there's parts of it that just maybe from a purely aesthetic standpoint or purely from a simplification standpoint, I might like tweak one or two things here and there just for it to be like the most easily uh, readable and quick as possible. But I think yeah, that I'm was already free. really, really solid. No, I mean, I think it was, it was I, I couldn't have just done that on my own. I wouldn't have done that on my own, at least I'll say. Um, so I really appreciate you making something like that because that's kind of getting at this question of like, what can we yeah. share? Well, with my friend Mikhail like, asked people. me to narrate it for him. So I did. I went, we had yeah. a Zoom that I tried to record and I fucked it up and it didn't record, but it was just like me just sort of explaining. Ah, so I may, I'll try to make it, I'll try to do it again where it's like a step by step of like, this is what this means for you. Right on. Et cetera. One other thing. Uh, if you ever consider doing a show with other Jonathan on money, I thought if you uh -huh. take the A, if you take the A out of both of your names, it could be Jonathan and Jonathan, which I thought would be kind of funny. I don't know. Think about it. Go. Okay. Andrew, I, I want it. I want it. Hang on. Save it. I'm gonna. You're gonna be up next. Oh. Let me. Let me let Jonathan finish what he was gonna. Um. What was I going to say? Just that he is Andrew's right about the sort of it's a way of fucking over the rest of the world. Uh, they all hold these long term bonds that are at 2%. And so we just issue a bunch of 5% bills and give them to our local friends. But then some people, some Americans get stuck with the low, the 2% bonds while we have a federal funds rate of 5% in like that bank. And that's why they collapse. You know? It's that's that. It's just like the usury doesn't cover the the, the interest. Right. You know, it's like if I'm if I'm if I'm the bank, and Amanda is uh, the treasury. So you give, so I I give you a loan, which is the same thing as saying you sell me a bond. That's just the same thing from the other side. And so like you're you're I have uh, treasury bonds and you're the treasury, right? And you're paying me uh, interest of one percent. And I'm like, oh nice, you're giving me money. Because I'm making the interest, but then I would have to borrow money from Phil, and if Phil is charging me zero point one, well, then the interest I'm getting from Amanda pays my uh, debt service to Phil, no problem. But then all of a sudden, uh, Phil's charging me five. Now you're like, now oh, shit. you're in the red. Now I've got a negative cash flow position. Right. That that's what happened in a nutshell. Right. You know. And they had a run on the bank, so they had to like. Shut it down, right, because right, because everybody knew their their assets were basically these long duration treasuries, and they knew that a couple of their accounts, you know, because the other the other source of income is this the the loans that they give out, and then you know some of these tech startups or whatever, one or two of them go bust, and everybody's like, oh shit. But here's the thing: is it wasn't it wasn't it doesn't even have to be that bad if you have everybody go literally any bank in the world. Like if you have every single depositor go to make the claim on their money at once, they don't have it. That's true of all banks all the time. You can, you can, you can cause a run on any bank with nothing but fear. There doesn't even have to be anything wrong with it. So this is like, not as it's not as bad as it as the 2008 one in that regard. Their, their, their assets are not as toxic as, uh, as, as the last as, time around as the debt swaps for the housing stuff 
Right, right. Though, because those housing, those were not treasury bonds. Those were mortgage-backed securities that, that contained mortgages that were never going to be made paid. Right. So that's that's different. But but like but, they also had this thing where they were writing off all these loans that were mortgages that were being foreclosed, so they would write off the the money loss and also own the house. Right, right. Yeah. In the house itself, if I think the house itself would have served as the collateral just fine if we would have all collectively believed it, but they knew that they've had an excuse to get $700 million from Obama because they acted like they were broke. But, you know, they could have sold that property. Of course, they're going to like, oh, no one wants to buy it. It's like no one wants to buy it at a variable uh, interest loan ninja loan well i think it's also that the banks weren't prepared to go and and market and sell all those houses yeah they they don't really want to because they want to keep them on their own balance sheets and then sell them to blackrock who's going to turn them into a a rental empire and they were compensated pretty just fine but because it's the banks and the blackrock it's all the same people anyway you know they all all the stocks for one are in a hedge fund that contains also a bunch of stocks for the other. It's all one nebulous, incestuous class. They don't really compete with each other, but that's a whole other thing. And the whole point of the financial system is so that we can have a roof over our head and eat some food and make sure that everybody gets food and clothing and yeah, but that's not the stated purpose of of the Federal Reserve, and it's and it's. No, no, I I was talking about money. Yeah. Would that be? But true it money? should be. Yeah, that should be why the Fed is like. Why do we even allow the Fed to exist instead of just having a treasury? It's like, oh, they're supposed to, uh, you know, yeah, they're supposed to ensure the labor market is okay. No, if they don't do that, they're supposed to ensure inflation stays. So really, oh, they got, they don't really do a very good job of that either. They're supposed to prevent cyclical booms and busts. No, no, they definitely don't do that. They failed at every single one of their stated purposes, all all at the cost of like making rich people richer, which we're supposed to put up with for stability. But they don't. So we're in the worst of both worlds because we put up with the inequality and still don't have the stability. Sailing. What's mind, my friend? Hi. Uh, sorry, I interrupted before. Is that that I had sent a link because my I, my phone broke and I have a very old one and I had sent to Andrea a link to WhatsApp because I cannot send it here. But yeah, I'll make sure to get it to you. So sorry that I interrupted like that. I didn't want. To oh, that's that's all right. Me. Can you put it on the Discord because I can grab it from the Discord. No, because I have this old phone right now until my brother bought, like my brother came from the U.S. and brought um, uh, with the cable that I need for, but I don't know when I'm going to see him if tomorrow oh, okay. or the next okay. day. But, what else is uh, on but I, will, I will make sure. Uh, well, one thing, a very sad welcome to my world. I had to learn what, yeah, what Jonathan was saying at the age of 12. Uh, it, it sucks, like, People are making kind of, you know, here we are very sarcastic. So it's the Argentinization, the Argentinization of the world. They're calling it. And it sucks. So I'm sorry you have to go through this. But on the other hand, I I listened to your show the other day. That's the link that I want. Maybe if, if 
you and Andrew and everybody can make every I and I heard you right like you said Argentina and so I of course google it <laughs> and uh, yeah I I sent you and a long time ago so it's, it's pointless that you look at it um, this link about the international left the oh, that, I did uh, I did go and look at it I did go and look at it oh well it goes uh, that this shower I don't know how to pronounce her name so there's information there from this woman that goes back to 2013, right? Like in in the, I imagine it is in the U.S. section maybe because, I, yeah, I, I send the link to, I, I, I will send you the link, but the, the, you know how it is from different countries? Yeah, it's, it's and, an interna international left or left international. No, here's the thing. The, it's, uh, it, it, you have another name. It's like soccer. Like everybody calls it football, right. and you can't. That's why it's like left view or something oh, like okay. that, right? So like everybody. What, what's the What's the one that you that you go to? That's the Spanish language one. No, no. here's the thing that that's the, the that I want. I will send you a link. So okay. in this link, you have uh, many countries, right? So you can choose uh, Argentina, right? In the in the Argentinian one, you can choose to go international, and that's the link I will send you. And you have many countries. And one of them is uh, the U.S., right? There is Poland, Germany, Mexico. There's a lot of countries. And the, I looked for this woman, and yeah, and I found information back to 2013 from her. So I thought it was cool, right? Like I, but I, I will make sure. Like, I wanted to explain how it works. It's um, a, a left party, left front here that works with many countries in the world, and they have this publication that is called La Izquierda Diario, or the left uh, journal. And in the US it's different, but it, it's all linked, right? It's all in the same page. So I will make sure everybody has it some way or another. Thank you, Sele, I appreciate that. Jonathan. Would, I was just asking you, you the link to the further? Discord, but I sent you a message, you can just send it oh, back. To okay, me. yeah, yeah. Uh, Jade, I learned by just listening to Giannis Varoufakis talk for like two dozen hours. Yeah. And that was uh, the beginning of my education. And I hope that having rooms like this where we can have conversation, you know, can help. Sele? I thought I could, I could open like a, a psychological kind of on how to, <laughs> how to deal with this world kind of if anyone needs to cope i'm i'm here to listen it's kind of a joke <laughs> anyway, Sele. Sele. you are here i can open like you are here to listen an emotional coping right like kind of of see so yes. the other thing it could mean for workers is you have a uh now i just remembered this the, the world can end in fire or it can end in ice so the world ending in ice looks like a protracted deflationary recession, which is deflationary because they do create demand destruction, but because nobody has any money, like there's no jobs, you know, it's, it's, so it's like the, it's kind of like the depression. Can you unpack the world deflationary recession? 
Well, then no, nobody can sell anything because nobody has any money. I was to the Jonathan because was he was going to finish with the world and the fire. Would mean Argentina. The world ending in fire is an inf it's a hyperinflation. Three thousand. Where like the, yeah, they they print money to cover up all the debts, and it just like assets go out of control, and then commodities go out of control, and it, there's basically a huge rift. Like yeah, like Argentina, uh, like what happened in Argentina. Yeah, yeah. yeah we had three thousand. We had three thousand a month inflation for a while when I was twelve. That's what I had to learn all these things, and yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Not 300, 3,000. But a deflationary recession is where prices don't go up, but your the value of your money is The, the prices less. don't go up. Nobody can sell anything because nobody has any money. Like consumer, wow. consumer con, uh, domestic consumption drops off a cliff because people are just losing their jobs and, you know, walking around the streets and not doing anything. They can't. There's no, there's no credit right. available. There's no employment available. Nothing. That's, that's ice. Now. So sad. Is 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 Argentina 2001 or Argentina now? It's so sad. On that super happy note, <laughs> we we this is this is about the amount of time that I had allotted. And and I do want to um, let people know this this episode will be published shortly, and um, I'd like to do another another room that kind of we work together on figuring something out, and hopefully we can lure some some Jonathans and Phils and other folks who are and Andrews who are experts in these in these fields in terms of their their experience and, and just the amount of time they've been studying these things, which is helpful for the rest of us to catch up. Cause Jade, there's really not any shortcuts. I wish that we had better sources, but I think we got a few good sources for beginners. I'm going to recommend that there's a few episodes of a, a podcast called unfucking the Republic, which focuses um, from the progressive viewpoint on economic politics or the, you know, the politics of economy in the United States. It's not international, but it does. Um, the ones that are specifically um, on banking issues and financial issues give an interesting and layperson look. And from what I can tell, based on what I know about economics and things like MMT, it seems like there's not a lot that would be misleading in that, in those episodes. So you, you can find it under UNFTR because unfucking the Republic is not the easiest thing to search on because, you know, profanity. But UNFTR is how you can find it. It's UNFTR.com. Most. Did anyone else want to want to say anything before we wrap the show? Yeah, that, yeah, that there has been, uh, you know, this situation in different parts of the world, and that had been uh, somehow in, a, in some places very hard and suffering through its solution, but in others not so much. So 
uh, it has been solved in other places. Ah, uh, so, so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Portugal, Israel. Oh? We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's at least some good news. On and on that happier note, thank you very much for that, Sele. I'm going to call us concluded for today's crowdsourcing revolution. Today is March 13th, 2023. I'm Amanda Rice. I want to thank all of the callers and guests of today's show. I hope everybody has a great day today.